Uh, let's pray together. Lord, make your word our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your glory our supreme concern. We ask for the sake we ask this for the sake of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, in nineteen ninety eight and ninety nine, a series of critical meetings and events happened within Australia. They culminated in a national referendum. Every Australian of voting age was required to express their views and desires about whether Australia should be a republic or not. I remember those days. I had certain inclinations myself. But if Australia voted yes, then we would have to rewrite our constitution. We would have to reorganise some of the way our government functioned. The changes would be huge in terms of our identity they would mean we were breaking free from our colonial past. And as you know, that the no vote prevailed. However, if it had succeeded, it might have issued in one of the most significant changes in the whole of our 200-year history, history of white Australia, as it were. Things would never have been the same again in Australia. Well, today we are going to look at another nation grappling with a similar level of change. It is a sea change administratively, but it is also a sea change in terms of identity. But let's remember that the passage we're looking about and we're looking at is not talking about Australia. No, it's the nation of Israel. That is the nation chosen and called by God. God's special people, holy nation, special possession. He is their God. They are his people. He is their king. They are his subjects. You see, this is not just any nation. Let's see what happens. It's a critical moment. You see, in my opinion, there are some deep things to learn about God here in this passage today. There are some deep things to learn about ourselves. So let's get underway. But before we do this, let's just remember where we are and where we have come from. We began the story of Samuel. Remember with that childless woman yearning for a child? The Lord answered her prayer and that launched her and us into a theological uh, exploration. Hannah told us about God's character. She taught us about the way in which God works in his world. She concluded her song by connecting her experience with an anointed one, that is with a Christ, with a king. Finally, she left her son in Shiloh. And somehow we knew that the two things were inextricably linked, kingship and her son. Samuel and kingship belonged together. We somehow knew that somehow. And the rest of chapter 2 showed us one of the internal factors that led to kingship. There was a corrupt priesthood. Chapter 3 revealed that God had a way of meeting that need through raising up a prophet, Samuel. Chapter 4 showed us some of the external factors that seemed to indicate a need for kingship. We met an old enemy, the Philistines who were already well known from the book of Judges. But now they'd become quite aggressive. However, chapters 4 to 6 showed us that those enemies were no real threat, really. After all, God could counter the Philistines and humiliate them and their gods without the assistance of any of the armies of Israel. Not only that, chapter 7 indicated that Samuel was an able leader. Why a king then? God doesn't need him. They've got Samuel as well. 
So Hannah taught us that kingship was coming. However, everything since then had said, kingship's not necessary. The internal situation doesn't need a king. External situation doesn't need a king. Israel itself acknowledges that. Look back to the end of chapter 7. Read verse 12. After a great victory of the Philistines, Samuel takes a stone, he sets it up between Mizpah and Shen, and he names it Ebenezer. And then he gives an explanation of the name. He says, thus far the Lord has helped us. The Lord's their king, their saviour, their help. They need no one else. That's the background of chapter 8. Chapter 8's laid all the foundation for this. It says, Israel doesn't need a king. They know. God knows. The writer of Samuel knows. That in mind, let's look at what happens. This chapter is quite different from the preceding chapters, chapter 8. They are dominated by story. This one's dominated by speech. Apparently some time has passed since the previous chapters. Um, Samuel has judged Israel well. Now he's old. Not only that, his sons are like the sons of Eli. Verse 3 tells us that they did not follow in Samuel's way. Where he judged Israel, they perverted justice. They turn aside after dishonest gain. They break covenant law by accepting bribes. So the elders come to Samuel. And look at what they say to him in verse 5. It's this background that shapes the elders' request in verse 5. They say to him, or in the following verses, they say to him, you are old. Your sons don't follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, just such as all the other nations have. Now the NIV footnote, if you have a look there, if you're using the NIV, tells us that the words to lead here are actually the words to judge. In other words, the elders have seen through what Samuel has done. Normally judges are appointed by God. However, the elders see that Samuel has not left things to God. Rather, he's taken God's prerogative. He's appointed judges himself. He's taken God's job, as it were. He's made the role of judge hereditary. So let me paraphrase what I think the elders are saying. They're saying something like this. Now, now listen, Samuel, you're old. Your sons don't follow your ways. However, you've gone and made the role of judge hereditary. Look, look, if we're after leadership that's hereditary, then maybe we should consider kingship. After all, that seems to, that's what everyone else is doing these days. It seems to work. Let's go that way rather than having a perpetual judgeship. That's my uh, little bit of loose translation of what's going on here and what they say. Now, the proposal put forward by the elders is very radical. It's much more radical than Samuel's option. It, 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 it implies a whole new identity for Israel. No longer will they be a loose tribal confederacy as they've been through judges and so on, ruled by judges. No, no, they'll be a state ruled by kings. So there's the proposal. Let's see how Samuel responds. Verse 6 lets us into Samuel's emotions. Look at it and I'll read it to you. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. Now, I want you to think about the context. What do you think displeases Samuel? In the context, I think that he's not so much displeased that the proposal is for a king like the nations. No, nor do I think that he's displeased with the idea of kingship itself. No, 
I think he's displeased that the elders have rejected his way ahead. He's personally offended, I think. And his prayer is full of personal affront. I think that you can see that in the response from God in verses 7 to 9, when God responds back. Let me read you God's response. God says, listen to Samuel. Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. And they've done so from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day. Forsaking me, serving other gods as they're doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Can you hear what God is doing and saying? First, he surprisingly has given in to the people's request. Second, he effectively tells Samuel that he hasn't listened properly. God says, it's not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. In other words, he's saying, Samuel, you're not hearing what is being said here. You haven't heard and passed on their comments about your corrupt sons, for example, and the problem that poses. Nor have you heard and passed on their comment about a king like the other nations. Can you see what's being said? God has been the ruler of Israel throughout their history. Judges 8, verse 23 will tell you that. His rule was expressed by his rescuing them when they called on him. He's appointed judges to rule over them and he cared for them in numerous other ways. So appointing a king is tantamount to rejecting his rule. And such rejection of God and his rule is nothing new in Israel. As God says in verse 8, they've done this from the moment he rescued them out of Egypt, formed them as a nation. They've been doing it ever since. Can you hear what God's saying? He's effectively saying the request for kings is just another act of idolatry and a long series of acts of idolatry and apostasy. And you're concerned with personal affront. But I'm concerned that about the people's fundamental allegiance to him, his relationship with them. They're rejecting him in what amounts to an act of idolatry. That's what God is telling Samuel. And that makes it even more surprising that God repeats what is said at the beginning. In verse 9, he tells Samuel a second time, now listen to them. But he also tells Samuel to spell out the implications and consequences of their request. Let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. Give it to them, but tell them the reality. Now let's take a close look at Samuel's speech. In verses 10 to 18, I want you to notice a number of things about what he says. First, Israel wanted a king because of what he, he might give them. Okay? What do they want a king for? For what he might give them. God's response is to tell them that kingship is more about taking than giving. We've already heard that the sons of Samuel took bribes, chapter 8, verse 3. Now Samuel tells Israel that a king will take. He will take what? Sons, verse 11. Daughters, verse 13. Best fields, vineyards, olive groves, verse 14. Tenth of your grain and of your vintage, verse 15. Your servants and maidservants and the best of your cattle and donkeys, verse 16. He will take, 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 take. What's more, when he does give, it will not be for his own people, but for his own sake. He will give to his attendants, verse 13. To his officials and attendants, verse 15. Take for his own use, verse 16. This is the first thing you need to learn about kings. They won't be characterised by giving to Israel. 
They'll be characterized by taking. Second thing that God makes clear through Samuel is that the elders of Israel have a very short memories. After all, their last experience of a king was Pharaoh in Egypt. And what did that mean? Slavery. Now look at verse 17. God tells his people that having a king will effectively mean slavery again. It'll mean returning to the bondage of Egypt. That's second thing. Third thing that God makes clear is that having a king will not be without cost. Up until now, you see, their relationship with God has been dynamic and immediate. You can see that in the book of Judges. Well, that will disappear. The escape from Egypt began with the plaintive groaning and crying out of God's people to God. Exodus 22, verses 23 to 25. Ever since that, they simply had to turn their eyes to God, lift their voices to God, call upon God and he would hear and rescue them. But look at what God says, verse 18. It's sobering. That immediacy will be gone. In other words, Israel he says, is about to forfeit something precious for a king. And they don't even seem to notice. Let me read you a more literal translation of this verse. It captures the irony. Listen to it. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, And the Lord will not answer you on that day. Can you see what God's saying to them? Yeah, you can have it. But you'll lose something. Anyway, the warning falls on deaf ears. The people choose the path of self-rule and God rejection, as they've been doing from Adam on. God had rescued them, made them a distinctive nation in the Exodus. Exodus 19 verses 1 to 6. He joined them to the incomparable God that Hannah celebrated in chapter one, in chapter two, one Samuel two two. They no longer want to be a distinctive people joined to an incomparable God. In other words, they want to be like all the other nations. What's more, they no longer want God to be their divine warrior like he'd been in Egypt, and just a chapter or two earlier than this chapter. Now, no, they want a king to go before them in battle. Listen to them in verses nineteen and twenty. Look at the verses. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel listens to this terrible act of idolatry. He repeats their their rejection before the Lord in verse 21. And the Lord says for the third time, listen to them. Give them a king. In the last verse of the chapter, Samuel then defers the day of appointment of a king and sends them home. There's the chapter. Now, the great news is that despite this act of idolatry and sin, God does stay with his people. He is a faithful God, the faithful God. He continues to be their God. He grants them kingship. Do you know what? He even ties kingship into his relationship with them. After all, he's the God of surprising generosity and kindness, isn't he? However, what I want to do, us to do now is to soberly reflect on what we see in this chapter. You see, I think this chapter taps into a common theme in the Bible and a common attitude amongst humans. 
God's view is explained in the Bible and it's crystal clear. We humans are created by God. We're created to be related to God, to have God as king and ruler. We're created to be dependent beings. Nevertheless, all human beings are fundamentally people who have a passion for self-rule. All humans long to be independent from God. They want to be their own rulers, taking their own advice, dependent upon themselves. That is our nature, isn't it? In the core of our being, we are just the same as ancient Israelites. Don't judge them too harshly. We are with them. We have a passion for self-rule. Their attitude is our attitude. Their passion, our passion. Their idolatry, our idolatry. And it's people, to people like us that chapter 8 sends a timely warning. Do you remember what God said to the people of Israel about their king? Basically, he told them, self-rule is hell. It's about living in a world ruled by people like us, who are self-interested. It's about living in a world ruled by people who are bent on taking. Take, take, take. It's about living in a world where people use other people for their own benefit and glory where people brutalise and enslave others. It's a world just like the one we hear about in the newspapers every day of our lives. Can you hear what God is saying? He's saying that a world where we make ourselves king, kings, is a world ruled by people as self-centred as us. A world where God is shifted to the periphery of our existence. Self-rule, friends, is hell on earth. So there's the human predicament. It's a predicament as old as 1 Samuel 8 and even Adam and Eve in the garden. We know that God is good and great and able, but it seems so risky, doesn't it, to follow him, to allow him to be ruler over our existence. We think, oh, having God would expose us to a life of unpredictability, precariousness. We're unsure Where would this lead? And what would God require of us, demand of us? In other words, we're not sure that we can trust God to do a better job than we ourselves would do. Now, if this is you, I want today to show you God the King in action. You see, as the story of God's action in the world unfolds in the Bible, God tells us that if we want to see him active as King, there's no... There is one definitive moment to see God the King at work. One moment in history that we can turn to. And that fundamental moment occurs when he sends his son Jesus into the world. Jesus, decked out like us, human. And as God, he thinks though, as God thinks. He acts as God acts. And what Jesus does is clear from the pages of the Bible. He and his father understand that we are people who have a passion for self-rule like Israel did. He and his father understand self-rule only brings hell on earth, not just to us but to everyone else as well. They understand that since heaven and earth will only be filled with those who are happy with the rule of God, then those who are into self-rule are headed for hell. And so God the Father sends God the Son, Jesus, into the world to do the task of a godly king and to rescue us from the tyranny of self-rule. He comes into the world. 
He lives a perfect life. And as true kings should do, he does not take, but he gives. And he gives his life on behalf of his people. He soaks up the punishment that is due to them because of their commitment to self-rule, because of our commitment to self-rule. He dies in our place. What Jesus does on the cross is a picture of the rule of God in action. It's not, God is not a cruel, distant tyrant, is he? No, he's kind, generous, just, forgiving. He always has the best interests of his subjects in mind. He's a king you can love and adore. He's a king that you can readily hand your life over to. That then brings us to the question of what a Christian is. Fundamentally, a Christian is someone who acknowledges the truth of what God says. A Christian acknowledges that deep in their being they are committed to self-rule. A Christian acknowledges that this is hell and that they want to be free from self-rule and its consequences. A Christian is therefore someone who turns to God. They ask for forgiveness for having been dominated by self-rule and they accept that from this point on they want God to be their king. A Christian does this by believing in Jesus, by accepting God's forgiveness offered in Jesus, by abandoning self-rule and living with Jesus as king and lord of their lives. I wonder if I could just finish up with one final word to you based on all of this. I wonder if there are some of you here today who are bound in self-rule, bound to self-rule. Perhaps you are distant from the loving God of rule of God as demonstrated in his son. Perhaps you've drifted away from it or become disenchanted with God or have come to lack confidence in God and his loving rule. Friends, if this is so, I wonder if I might urge you to fix your eyes on God's kingship as exercised in God's son, Jesus. Might I urge you to turn back to him? To do so is to become God's child. It's to become Christian. To reaffirm that you want to live as a Christian. Friends, let me tell you, self-rule is hell. Free yourself from it. Free yourself from its consequences. Turn back to God. Ask for his, ask for his forgiveness. For clinging on to self-rule. Accept that from this point on you only want Jesus to be your saviour, your lord, your king. And if you've never done this before but want to do it today, then I urge you to talk to a friend who knows Jesus. Ask them to help you accept Jesus as your kind, generous and gracious ruler. They will be more than glad to help you, I can tell you. Friends, the kings of Israel were humans like us. They failed. Do you know the glory of the gospel? Jesus too was human. But he was also God in the flesh. And he didn't fail. No. He can be trusted as God's true king. So turn to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We see these kings of Israel and we see so much of ourselves in them. Father, we pray today that you'd help us to turn to your true king, our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that he knows what it is to be human, for he too 
was human, but thank you that he is also God in the flesh and that he did not fail and that he can be trusted as God's true king. That he came alive from the dead, that he now sits at your right hand and can be trusted. We commit ourselves to him and we pray these things in his name. Amen.